How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Award-winning author, Dr. Joe, has a new book coming out as soon as next week. That's right. Unleashing the power right. of respect. The I am approach. I, I, so we were talking a, a little bit about the global response to this pandemic, but here's one of the things that is happening globally because of the pandemic. It has to do with stress. And when we experience stress, there's a chemical in our brain that's released and it's like Paul Revere and it says danger, 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 there's danger coming. This chemical, ACTH, I don't need to go into the fancy name, goes and stimulates the very top of your kidneys where the adrenal glands live. These little, little glands, adrenal, adrenaline, cortisol, the two are a little bit different, but it tells these part of your body, the biological domain, that there's danger. And so Paul Revere releases the Minutemen that go out and begin to protect you against whatever the danger is. In order to do that, you begin to pump more blood to your arms and legs in case there's a predator that you've got to run away from or fight. Your heart rate will increase. All these different things begin to happen. Great under acute stress, terrible under chronic stress because it's the exact same mechanism. And then people are at risk for all sorts of things. But here's another thing that cortisol does. You guys know about dopamine, right? Dopamine, a basic chemical of pleasure, all drugs and alcohol force your brain to make dopamine. Cortisol inhibits dopamine. Stress inhibits pleasure. Cortisol also inhibits oxytocin the neurohormone of love and trust. Stress inhibits trust. That's what we are up against as a species right now. We're activating the perfectly normal fight, flight, freeze response. But as a result, it's interfering with our dopamine and our oxytocin. It's just the biological domain. It's just the way the brain works. But once you know it, you can do something about it. How are you meant to change something if you don't know? why it's happening. But this could be why there's more substance use going on because people aren't experiencing the pleasure of dopamine. This could be why there's more anger going on because people aren't experiencing the social bonding of oxytocin. Wouldn't it be interesting if this is really part of what's going on? That the stress in our environment has activated this most ancient important part of our survival machine, but we don't need to do that. We can recognize it and make a small change and do something different. And that is the power of respect. That's what the I am is saying. This is what's happening in our world. 
in our home and social domain, we are being assaulted by a predator. It's a virus in this case. So you can't even see it, but it's having an effect on your biological domain. And as a result, your IC domain is affected because am I less valuable? Am I vulnerable? And if you feel vulnerable, you will activate the fight, flight, freeze response to either fight someone to increase your value, run away from them to protect your value, or shut down and hope the danger passes. But we have three more Fs, family, friendship, fellowship, and as you've heard me say, if you're not very good at spelling position, where we can share the worry with each other. Why not? Why not do that? One day we'll be able to do this without having to have a common enemy. But right now we do. It's a virus. Let's come together around that and figure out how we protect each other. So unleashing the power of respect, the I am approach, it addresses these things a little bit. But what it really does is talk about some stories, some patient teachers of mine. And if it's okay with you, the audience, I am going to ask my co-hosts to read one of our stories, and it is called The Two Gifts. Gentlemen, I am really looking forward to hearing it. Mark, do you want to start? And you're going to go page by page like last time? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Chapter seven, The Two Gifts. I made you something. Brenda had been passed from psychiatric resident to resident. Now at 26, she had wound up with me in my third year of training, yet another psychiatric resident. She had come dutifully to her first appointment six months before and had never missed an appointment until she was hospitalized for cutting herself, wanting to die. And now she sat across from me, her first visit after being discharged from the locked inpatient ward, offering me a gift. Brenda had grown up in a cult after her mother, Linda, gave birth to her out of wedlock, as described in Brenda's chart by a long distance reporter, Linda had found her own family to be less than receptive. Her and Brenda's father were young, naive, and poor, but they did not separate. They instead found a like-minded group of people who were involved in a community type of living. This was as much as I had read in Brenda's chart. Usually my style was to read the first few sentences, then wait to hear the story from the patient. Narrative storytelling is an ancient art, long preceding the written word. How a person tells their story is often just as important as the story itself. Their history, their mythology, and their emphasis or dismissal are clues as to where they are, what they believe is important, and what may be simply too difficult to manage. So that was all I'd read and knew when I'd first met Brenda, other than the words of caution from her previous resident. Warning, she's a borderline. Not, she carries a diagnosis of borderline personality, a diagnostic label that describes a constellation of symptoms, including volatility in relationships, often a history of self-harm and mutilation, and the implication of a horribly degrading experience somewhere in life, often sexual abuse by someone, somewhere for some time. No, nothing. So removed from emotion and even suggesting disdain, irritation, annoyance, perhaps even frank dislike in the resident's warning. Not has, but is. 
as if this woman's entire existence was defined by her diagnosis. I didn't recall anyone saying to me about another patient things like, he's a major depression, or she's a bipolar disorder, or this little boy is in attention deficit with hyperactivity. The diagnosis was not supposed to become a descriptor, densely decorated with ominous overtones, a borderline. So I waited to see who Brenda was and read the chart no more. This may have been a mistake. In fact, at our first meeting, after our introduction, and after I asked my first question about what had happened to bring her to the clinic, before Brenda started to describe the highlights of experience, she appeared to bristle at the question and asked, well, did you read the chart? It's all in there, you know. What happened? I really would rather not go over it again. I was in trouble. A psychiatry resident in training at my first outpatient clinic facing a seasoned patient who had volatile relationships, surely based on something bad that had happened to her in the past. With an idiot for a resident who had not read her chart, images flashed through my mind in an instant of being stupid, inadequate, and being reported to the Board of Medicine. My pulse began to go faster. I felt a little anxious, and I found myself feeling a little defensive. Hell, a lot defensive. This was in the first 60 seconds and I was slated to have her as my patient for the next year. My heart sank, and I found myself drifting back to the warning from the prior resident, wondering if that small smile on her face as she passed me Brenda's chart had indeed been a smirk, a subtle grin of glee. I did skim it, but only glimpsed, I said, trying to regroup. For me, it's more interesting to get the story from you. I can always read what somebody else wrote, but then I may be reading what they think is important. This answer met with silence. But I am interested, I continued hopefully. Read the chart, she replied, unmoved. Dr. Grendel did. The previous resident, a woman, had treated Brenda for the past two years, then graduated. It was Grendel who had signed Brenda out to me warning, she's a borderline. I had heard about this mysterious and ominous creature, the borderline, since my second year as a resident. The label was reserved for patients, usually young women who had been abused, and as a moniker for the patient who gave you the most trouble, who would alternately idealize and then reject you, agree to be safe, then provocatively tell you that they were suicidal, consistently search for support, attachment, then refuse your help. For many residents, borderlines were the bane of their clinic. For nurses, the bane of the inpatient unit. And for the line staff, the bane of their existence. Often losing control or hiding something sharp with which to cut during the watch of staff who felt progressively helpless and worthless, slowly becoming engaged with this borderline who would not let them do their job of keeping them and the unit safe. Brenda didn't look borderline. She looked perfectly normal, in this case a pleasant-appearing 26-year-old woman, well-groomed, wearing a casual pair of jeans and a simple shirt and light sweater. Although she was bristly at that moment, who could blame her? She had been passed off from resident to resident, in the same way, as I would learn, her mother had passed her off from adult to adult or teenager to teenager in the commune. She had been passed off so many times that no one knew when the abuse started, or with who, until she began to run away again and again, until her mother finally asked her why. Why would she want to run from this most idyllic of settings? From people who cared for her, where she had not just one mother, but several, 
not just one father, but several, and dozens of brothers and sisters, all who loved her. And now she had to sit with me, passed off like a child with no recourse, to yet another stranger. So she did not want to recount her story yet again, but assertively told me to just read it, and that I should have read it already and been prepared. After all, that's what Dr. Grendelin does. I was just learning about this stuff, therapy, and here I had a young woman, a patient, telling me I was already doing it wrong. I felt stupid, inadequate, and started to get angry. And there was a silence, and I remembered to breathe. And I realized I had a feeling, a response to this, the first minute of my time with Brenda, then a stranger to me as I was a stranger to her. It was a sense of danger or power being bandied back and forth. It was about control, the first minute. I found myself hearing all my supervisors shouting all at once in my head, in harmony, deep within the jacket and tie, top button button model of a psychiatrist that I believed myself to be as a budding therapist. Hey, is that a feeling you are having? What the heck is that about? Oh yeah, it's about the patient. And I responded to Brenda, seems like you're thinking about Dr. Grendel. I said it as an attempt to acknowledge in what I hoped was a non-judgmental way. Despite being judged myself, that Brenda was comparing me to the other resident. I was not being defensive, but perhaps a bit too elusive. An issue on which I was called on by Brenda immediately. No, I'm not talking about you, Dr. Strand. Shrand, whatever. By the next session, I had read the chart, the whole thing, twice. I knew vaguely about her childhood, living in the commune, which was really a cult, how her mother had found out from a disgruntled commune member who had left that her daughter had been passed from adult to adult, how her mother had then taken her 13-year-old daughter and the two escaped, how her father pursued them, allegedly to bring them back, but in reality was making his own escape. From there, the history was even vaguer, but depicted a teenager in distress, getting into drugs and alcohol, suicidal, cutting, burning, promiscuous, uncaring, uncompromising. She did poorly in school and would stay out for days and nights before returning home. In desperation, her mother sent her to a convent in Italy. Her hope and wish was that the nuns would help her daughter find God, really some relief from her suffering. And then Brenda was back in the US, embarking on a long series of hospitalizations, medications, and a steady stream of third year psychiatric residents. Back for her second session, I related her story back to Brenda. Did I miss anything? Is there anything you wanna add? Brenda continued to seem ready for a confrontation. Are you saying I didn't tell you everything? Actually, you didn't tell me anything except to read the chart. That's all there is. That's it. That's it. And for the next several weeks, that was it. But there was a big gap missing. The story in the chart seemed to skip over several years in the convent, picking up with the hospitalizations multiple times over the next several years following. Dr. Grendel had hospitalized Brenda eight times during the two years of her treatment, always for the same thing, cutting usually superficial, and then proactively refusing to guarantee she would be safe. 
In the hospital, Brenda would continue to regress, trying to cut herself, usually winding up on a close supervision with a staff member always within arm's length and a foot in the bathroom door, an abdication of her own safety to the control of the staff. She would often need restraints, given injections of medication and placed on her back with her wrists and ankles, bound in cotton-padded leather restraints that were woven through well-designed slits and a wooden bed frame. So that was all Brenda was going to say about the chart, about her past that had been the words of others. What's on your mind today? I cut myself last night, just like that. Simple, minimal emotion, a blank acknowledgement of some underlying torment. How come? Too much pressure. It's a relief. Pressure? Yeah, my job, my boyfriend, my parents, lots of stuff. Did it help? Well, of course it helped, Dr. Strand, or I wouldn't have done it. Shrand. What? Shrand. My last name is Shrand. Whatever. I lost her, and she did not want to talk about her cutting anymore that day, but I went on. So, are you safe? If you mean, am I going to kill myself? I don't know. There I was, a psychiatrist in training, and a 26-year-old woman who I'd met maybe five times is telling me she cannot guarantee her safety. Overcoming the enormous desire to ask her to just wait while I called my supervisor or while I tried to find Dr. Grendel. While the cold sweat of terror built bead upon bead upon my back, and I hoped against hope that a visible torrent did not stop flowing easily, serenely, and gladly down from my forehead. Instead, I pursued her perceived provocation. Do you have a plan? A plan? I have pills, razors, knives, ropes, a car. Why do we need a plan? On the spot, I made something up, something I have used ever since again and again during suicide assessments. On a scale of zero to 10, a suicide scale, with zero being, you say to me, Dr. Schrand, Dr. Schrand, if I walk out of here, I'll be fine. And 10 being, Dr. Schrand, if I walk out of here, I know exactly what I'll do, where I'll go, nobody will find me, I'll be dead. Where are you on that scale of zero to 10? Without a pause, Brenda said, five. Why not a six? I was asking her to consider what needed to be different in her environment, in her world to make her more suicidal. Now she paused. I worried I had lost her again, but she replied, because my boyfriend and I aren't fighting that much. Why not a four? Again, a pause. And then, because I have a project due at work and my boss is being annoying that I haven't finished. What's the project? Brenda began talking about her work, then about her boyfriend, and a little about her mother who was always calling, worrying. As the session progressed, Brenda began to teach me about her world, about how the small vagaries of her life manifested in a desire to hurt herself, to relieve herself from the emotional pain. Toward the end of the session, I asked again how suicidal she was. This time, she was a three. But that could change. And then what, I asked. And then, who knows? But can you at least stay alive until our next visit? I felt the cold sweat again. Would she take this as a challenge? And if so, what would I do? Okay, Dr. Strand. Over the next several months, Brenda began to attach, keeping her appointments, routinely exploring the suicide scale and the things that influenced her suicidality and self-injury. She would show me the superficial scratches or remark how many pills she still had left over from other therapists. She and I made an agreement. 
if she was going to overdose, it would not be with any of the pills that I had prescribed. The silliness of the suggestion appealed to her and she agreed. In the same way, in regard to her cutting, I would say to her, I can live with it if you can. It was impractical to think that I could stop her from cutting. But if it was going to become lethal, then she would have to come into the hospital where we would temporarily relieve her of the responsibility for her own safety until she could once again maintain it herself. This also sat well with Brenda. And although she scratched herself, I did not hospitalize her. Instead, we began to look at why she scratched, what was her anguish, and began to see a link between anger and powerlessness and her own self-harm. Then I went to a conference. I listened to Dr. Habib Davanli, the founder of Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy. This technique, according to Dr. Davanlu, promised a method to unlock the unconscious. He spoke about assessing a patient's readiness to embark on this rather confrontational approach, as he said, always addressing and acknowledging the resistance until finally the patient would have a cathartic moment of unparalleled psychic vulnerability. Whenceforth, a hidden memory from the unconscious would blossom forth. One had to choose patients carefully, however, especially with those with borderline personality disorder, as the confrontational style may be too much to bear, tipping them into dissociation, a break from the horror of their own deep unconscious murderous rage. It sounded too cool. Back with Brenda, back from my conference, back after a week away, which meant Brenda and I had missed one of her weekly sessions while I was immersing myself in this new technique, I sat across from her ready to try this intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. Brenda may have had some feelings about my being away. She'd cut superficially during my absence, but it attributed one to a fight with her boyfriend, another to a fight with her mother, another to a fight with her boss, drinking at a bar, being tempted to pick up a stranger, and a dozen more reasons. I even tried to call Dr. Grendel. So you were angry with me that I was away. So I let me say that this was the Davenlu technique. This was confronting somebody, as you'll hear, about what's going on in their life, which leads to resistance if you do it too much. And when you confront someone, it can activate all sorts of things in their brain. I was angry with my boyfriend, but you took it out on yourself. I always do that. You know that already. But why would you want to do that to yourself? I don't want to talk about this anymore. Here was my cue. According to Davenlou, this was avoidance, a resistance. If I just continued to confront the resistance, I would break through into the deeply unconscious, murderous rage harbored by Brenda. I confronted. That's an avoidance. I said, I don't want to talk about this anymore, doctor. The doctor was said with an ominous, bristly tone, a tone I had not heard since our second session. But back then, I had not been to the conference. Now I had. I pushed the technique and found myself challenging the resistance, just like Devin Love. So at the end of today, you will walk out of the session and I will say, well, I tried to help, but Brenda didn't want to get any help. She put up a wall. Why would you want to do that? I told you, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. I, I feel dizzy. Another avoidance. 
In front of me, Brenda seemed to drift away. Her eyes began to glaze as she drifted into dissociation. She began to tell me not of the deeply unconscious murderous rage she harbored, but that she was starting to hear voices, to get paranoid. Was this another attempt to avoid talking about her rage? Crap, no. She was really dissociating and becoming, becoming progressively psychotic. I had tipped her into a psychosis and had to hospitalize her, where for the next several days she continued to regress, become self-mutilating, was restrained, medicated, and spawned more anger and resentment in the staff. Another borderline. I went to visit Brenda in the hospital. I had never done that before with any patient, and have never done so since. I may hospitalize a patient for safety, and will be in touch with the treatment team, but I will always wait until the person is out of the hospital back in my office, and then process the events leading to their inpatient stay. But this time, this once, I went to see Brenda, because I had made a mistake. I had pushed her when she asked not to be pushed. In some real way, I had been abusive, confrontational, experimental, and I wanted to apologize. I wanted her to know that I was sorry. I had made a mistake, and I never intended to harm her, let alone flip her into a psychotic process. I had tolerated with her for months her superficial scratching, even as her work had not been more, even as her work had not been superficial. I was finally beginning to dip beneath her defenses, looking at what made her more or less suicidal. How cutting was a way for her to stay in control. And when that control was taken from her, she lashed out in fear and desperation, reminded brutally of the adults after adults who had raped her in the commune until she ran. Ran for her safety, for protection, for some sense of power and control. And now she was back in the hospital, a locked inpatient ward where you had to ask permission to pee. And with the label borderline, the word alone, a disrespect for how she had arrived at this most desperate engagement with her world. Brenda and I had tolerated her provocations, her suicidality, because I had trusted her to live, because I had treated her with dignity and respect, amazed at why she was not doing worse given the outrage of her life. I tolerated her anger, her rebuke her early disdain, and slowly, slowly earned with little trust she could muster. And then I tipped her into a psychotic break. I was there in the hospital to apologize. I made you something. Within a day after my visit to Brenda, she had come off suicide watch, said she was safe and wanted to be discharged in time for the next outpatient appointment with Dr. Schrand. He's my psychiatrist. She sat across from me, drawing out of her handbag a plastic baggie, brimming with some form of it, something. It was not immediately recognizable, strips of something that resembled peelings of a citrus fruit covered with opaque crystalline grains resembling sugar. I made this for you. It's candied grapefruit rind. Try one. I do not usually accept gifts from patients. I don't go and visit them in the hospital either but I am also not in the habit of making them psychotic. Brenda took a piece from the bag and extended her hands. I extended mine and took the gift she offered. She took out the second piece, and together we shared a moment, letting the bittersweet taste of the grapefruit rind embedded in crystals of sugar engulf us. For the rest of the session, we spoke about the bittersweet quality of relationships, how sometimes allowing oneself to be vulnerable, to risk rejection, to risk intimacy, 
to trust, to love, to hate, to feel a rich range of emotions for a person, sometimes all at the same moment, was captured in the gift of a candy grapefruit rind. She never thanked me for visiting her in the hospital, at least not with words. But as the next few months went on, she began to tell me of what had happened in the convent, how she had again been abused and molested, how the people her mother had yet again entrusted to protect her had betrayed her, exploited her, degraded and reviled her for her sins, for old sins, for being a temptress, for being. When I confronted her, she exploded. It violated our unspoken agreement that I would trust her to know her limits. Violated the I can live with it if you can rule. Penetrated the fabric and familiarity of the relationship we had developed. Startled her, enraged her, terrified her as her unconscious desire to lash back at me, at her mother, at violator after violator conflicted with her wish to trust me. Her wish to trust me. Her desire and need to have at least one safe place where she could be honest and respected and not thrown into a psych hospital, not for her own protection, but because of the intolerance of those who were meant to trust her. Bittersweet are relationships, the most honest ones, full of conflicts that dissolve into deeper understanding and appreciation, deeper love and dignity and respect, moving, changing, laughing, warm, and able to embrace differences, enjoy strength, see weaknesses as doing the best one can. Brenda spoke about the convent, about her return, about her image of herself as useless and worthless and full of rage, often impotent, drawn out by the thin sliver of blood drawn from a superficial scratch. She was not hospitalized again for the next few months. I had been slated to do four years of adult psychiatric residency, but in the middle of my third year, I realized I wanted to be a child psychiatrist as well. I applied for a fellowship and was accepted. This was February and I was due to start in July. I had four months to terminate with my clinic patients. The majority of them were used to going from one resident to another, accepting the early change with muted resignation. So did Brenda. There was no escalation of cutting, no increase in provocation. She and I spoke about her next psychiatrist, and I suggested she allow me to find her an attending, a permanent psychiatrist, with whom she could continue to work on her therapy and not another resident. The clinic director agreed, and we secured for Brenda an excellent psychiatrist. Brenda and I continued to meet every week until the termination session. It passed without events, and she walked out of the door to be seen the next week by her new psychiatrist. I wrote in the chart, terminated well, continues to work on relationship issues, diagnosis more consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder, while with symptoms of self-mutilation and volatility that could be interpreted as borderline features. However, was able to engage in meaningful insight-oriented therapy, could not tolerate much confrontation without decompensation. Overall, improved. She had terminated without event. And I was actually a bit surprised. Two days later, I received a message from Brenda on my voicemail. After a polite salutation, she went to the core of her contact. Can I come in for one more session? I forgot to give you the gift I have for you. Sweat. I felt sweat beat up again. A second gift? For an instant, the movie Fatal Attraction swept a hurricane path from my limbic system. Two gifts. The termination was too calm. A gun? Was it more difficult than she thought to say goodbye? We had terminated. But if I told her that we could not meet again, would this apparent rejection undo the trust she had built in me? 
and I trust she that I had found her a new and secure and trustworthy and really good new therapist. Another gift. I picked up the phone. I dialed her number. She answered. Wow. So we're out of time. Don't you want to know what happens next? If you go to our Facebook page, yes. you can hear the rest of this chapter. That's right. Come this has been a lot of fun. Facebook. Don't forget. Yeah. All right. We'll Book comes out next week. See you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.